In the meantime, while we're ruminating over that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our text this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 24. I'd appreciate it if you'd follow along either in your Bible or on your device or the transcript itself. The topic we find there, believers in Corinth were to remain married to their non-believing spouses and thereby have a sanctifying influence in their homes. The title of our message, Honey, I Sanctified the Kids. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, appreciate having your word to read and study, to apply. We hope all of those things can happen today, Lord, that we would be excited to be hearers of what the Spirit says to the church. And, and then take that word, Lord, and make it real in our lives and in the lives of others that we have relationship with. Guide us and direct us, Lord. Help us not to have preconceptions, but to just listen to you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You might remember the well-publicized 2009 case of Carl Fredrickson. Redevelopment wanted to buy his house, but he stubbornly refused to sell. You see, his beloved wife, Ellie, died before they were going to sell their house to realize their dream of moving to Paradise Falls. Their old house was more than just real estate to him. The case made the news when Carl got into a fight with a construction worker named Steve over his broken mailbox. <laughs> the court labeled Carl a public menace and ordered him to remove, or rather to move into Shady Oaks Retirement Home. Now, Carl is an example of someone wanting to remain in their situation, remain in their home. I thought of him because the Apostle Paul told believers in Corinth to remain with God in that state in which you were called, verse 24. Specifically, he addressed three groups. To those who were married to a non-believer, he said, remain. To those who were uncircumcised Gentiles, he said, remain. And to those who were slaves, he said, remain. But not just remain, remain to sanctify. In verse 14, we read, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. You might say that the Christian is to remain to be seen. Your situation should always take a back seat to your living out the Christian life right where you find yourself. I'll organize my comments around two questions we should ask ourselves. Number one, is Jesus calling me to remain in my social situation? And number two, is Jesus calling me to remain in my spousal situation? Let's take a look at our social situation first. Squirrel. <laughs> Doug, the talking dog in the Pixar film Up, was distracted every time he saw a squirrel. And in case you didn't see it, the story I told about Carl Fredrickson is from the film Up. How many of you thought it was a real story? Raise your hand. Oh, I almost got you there. Great movie. Your kids can't see the first part of it. But anyway, what's with all the most Disney movies you can't, your kids can't see the first few minutes. That's when the parents die. I was thinking the other day, I almost searched it out, but a remarkable member, an amount of parents die in Disney movies or are killed. Um, subliminal advertising. We can get distracted reading the Bible. One way we get distracted is by focusing on something of interest to us in the passage that may not be the real point. Marriage and remarriage and divorce are a biblical squirrel. Any passage even remotely mentioning it attracts our immediate attention. It is certainly understandable. Almost nothing touches our lives so intimately. 
When we read these verses, we tend to focus on the counsel Paul gave about marriage and divorce and remarriage, except for two things to keep in mind. Number one, he never once directly said anything about remarriage. We'll see that we um, can apply something he said, but he wasn't addressing remarriage. And number two, marriage was not even his primary emphasis. It was one of three problems that were happening at the time. The primary emphasis is remaining in the same calling in which you were called, verse 20. And that's why I want to take these verses in a slightly different order, looking at verses 17 through 24 first. Because in them, Paul established the principle which guided his counsel to believers about what to do in various situations, including their marriages. And so let's start with verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. In Corinth, three issues were affecting the new believers. Some had become believers and were married to non-believers. Should they split? After all, believers ought to only marry other believers. Number two, most were Gentile believers who were being told to convert to Judaism. Maybe they ought to, at the very least, be circumcised just to be sure. And third, others were slaves. That can't be right. Maybe they should escape. These were sincere questions. After all, these believers did not have centuries of history and biblical commentary to guide them. Imagine being a first century Christian in the church at Corinth. No radio, no audible books, uh, no cassette deck on your chariot, none of that stuff. There's only one church who, and, and if you didn't know Christ or, you know, uh, you wouldn't even know where that was unless you stumbled upon it because there wasn't any advertising or anything like that. Uh, and, and so it was tough. These questions, these are questions that we, we still have in a certain extent after centuries of commentary and, I mean, being bombarded with Bible all the time if you wanted to be. And so... Um, I cut them some slack uh, because some of their thinking, though it turns out to be wrong, at least they were thinking. God had called each to salvation exactly where they were distributed. They ought to walk with the Lord in the situation they were in when they were saved. And Paul says, I ordain this principle in all the churches. That means it's every bit as much for us as it was for any church in the first century. It's a general principle. Wisdom is needed to apply it. Let's say a Corinthian prostitute got saved. Of course, she or he should not remain in that situation because that is immoral and sinful. So you need to exercise some common sense. Nevertheless, remaining needs to be our first goal. Should I remain in this situation? And I think the answer is yes, unless there is compelling leading to get out of it. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 18, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised. God gave Abraham circumcision as a sign of his covenant with him and his future descendants. It was an outward physical sign of the cutting away of the flesh of our hearts. All Jewish men were circumcised. All Gentile converts to Judaism were circumcised. It was so important to the Jews that in the Bible... Jews are referred to as the circumcision, and all Gentiles are referred to as the uncircumcision. They had the covenant, Gentiles did not, and it was made uh, obvious by circumcision. 
Add to all that that there were Jews visiting the Gentile churches teaching that circumcision was still necessary for salvation, and you see the real confusion that there would be in Corinth. People still do this today, but more often it's baptism or keeping the Sabbath that they promote and claim is necessary in order for you to be saved. Uh, Grace plus nothing uh, is what's in order for you to be saved. Grace and, and faith in Jesus Christ Grace of God is a free gift, and so uh, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. You can't do any works to be saved. Works will follow. Fruit will follow. That's true, but salvation is God's free gift, and uh, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. If you were a Jew, how could you become uncircumcised? Well, it's obviously a spiritual argument. Paul meant at least two things. Number one, Theologically, you need no longer keep the rituals of the law of Moses as a requirement of salvation. You were free to continue to go to the temple and to celebrate feasts and stuff, but you didn't do it in the light of, uh, of salvation. You understood what they represented, the life and work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, you know, all the first Jews, or excuse me, all the first Christians were Jews. And uh, you see Paul and Barnabas and Peter and John and all the rest still hanging around the temple, going in for prayer three times a day, those kinds of things. But that's not what saved them. Jesus Christ saved them. So they continued in their Jewish traditions, but not as thinking that they made them righteous because they had been declared righteous by God. And then practically, you could have fellowship with Gentiles. To the Gentiles, you could be as a Gentile, eating their food, for example, in order to be able to share in the fellowship of Jesus or to share Jesus with them. Paul was a great example of this. He could be among Gentiles and live like them, being all things to all men, but he could also visit the temple and take a vow and go through certain Jewish rites, knowing that they meant nothing. The Gentile could become, un, uh, could become circumcised, excuse me, not physically, but spiritually. One way was to heed the directives of the church council in Jerusalem, which instructed Gentiles, and I quote, that you abstain from things offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. You remember the situation in Acts 15? The Judaizers were going around teaching that it's great to be born again, but you also have to be circumcised and keep dietary laws and essentially convert to Judaism to complete your salvation. And uh, Paul and Barnabas were called down to this council and the church wisely decided that all Gentiles had to do was not offend Jews. Uh, there was nothing they had to do for salvation, but they recommended they not go out of their way to offend their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so it was all common sense counsel. And adhering to that would give them opportunity to preach Jesus to the Jews and to share in fellowship. And again, the bedrock principle here really is that your life is to be a witness and then Paul moves out from there and he applies it to these other situations. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Whether you were a Jew or a Gentile was irrelevant. What mattered was your obedience to God. Verse 20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Your situation, I say this with some kindness, is irrelevant. You are to walk empowered by the Spirit in obedience to God in any situation you find yourself in. And um, I, over the years, I've told many people this. They never come back. That's not why I tell them, but you know, sometimes people come in, they say they're having a horrible time somewhere, and they are. 
And, 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 and we'll go, you know, and, and then I'll say, well, do you have any leading to go anywhere else other than your don't like the situation that you're in? No. Well, then remain. And, and nobody likes to hear that. It's a tough word. But, you know, Jesus, I think, once said that if the world hated me, it will do what? Shower you with love? No, it says it's going to hate you. So you, this is an exaggeration. You should get up tomorrow and get ready to go to work where everybody hates you. Because that's what Jesus said was the potential. And you should be excited about it because how can you love your enemies if you're not around your enemies? You can't. I mean, you can do it philosophically. Well, I love those guys, yeah, over there. I hear they're a bunch of weirdos, but I love them. But I don't work with them. And so, you know, I'll say this once now and probably again several times. You don't always have to stay in your situation. Obviously, people, the Lord does open doors. But I think sometimes our first reaction when things are going sour, I have to get out of here. This can't be right. And the Lord's saying, hey, it's taken me a long time to set this up where your enemies are here. I had to hire this guy and fire that guy to get you right into this position where you could be hated and show my love. And so we want to remain. This council was originally for the relatively new believers in Corinth who were unequally yoked in marriage or who were Gentiles or who were slaves. But it still has application to anyone who receives Jesus and finds themselves in a less than ideal situation like being married to a non-believer. Again, not that we can never change our situation, but we should only change it as God leads. And it isn't enough that our home or our job isn't ideal. It isn't enough that we're having a tough time. That's not necessarily God's leading. Everything was fine at work. Now it's terrible. I need to leave. Maybe. We're to walk obediently, trusting in the Lord until he definitely opens a new door for us. I absolutely hated my sales job after I got saved. I can't tell, I would stun you to know how much I hated it. It was the most ridiculous thing and seemed so unimportant. But I had some of the greatest times of witness after I got saved in that less than ideal situation. Some incredible things happened uh, while I was doing that. And I, I didn't do them. I mean, the Lord just did them. So uh, I, I, can, uh, I can relate. I have stories too about terrible things that happen in the workplace, illegal things, weird things. I always trump people by, you know, you have to go back and forth, you know, like that scene in Jaws where they show their scars. You say, well, this happened to me and this happened to me. And I said, then I finally say, I was served with a subpoena by the Department of Justice. Really? Yeah. I'll tell you about it sometime. I wasn't doing anything wrong, by the way. <laughs> Our pastor's a criminal. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? It was actually one of the most fun days of my life. It was the greatest day. It was so fun. I should just take a Sunday and tell stories. I'd be like Abraham Lincoln. I'd dress up like Abraham Lincoln because he told a lot of stories, right? I'll start talking like this. I remember in Ot 85. <laughs> were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Can you imagine saying this to somebody, giving them counsel? Hey, what's your problem? I'm a slave. Don't worry about it. What? What did you just say? If you were called while a slave, you're, you're going to be the best slave you could be. You were to be the Lord's slave, looking past your master on earth to Jesus. If you could acquire your freedom, go for it. Otherwise, don't be concerned about the fact that you were a slave. God knew that. Now, this kind of slavery in the Roman first century is not the slavery that was practiced 
prior to the Civil War. And we're not talking about the slave Bible that I talked about some months ago where it only has passages that encourage people to remain slaves. That's true. There is such a thing called the slave Bible. It's very rare. But uh, anyway, uh, so, but at the same time, it was still slavery of a type. And Paul would say, this is his counsel to slaves, be a great slave and see what God's going to, because you know what? When you got saved, you don't have to say, hey, God, do you see that I'm a slave? Yeah, I know that. And you're the only Christian in that household. And I need to use you right there. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's, is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. The slave had been set free spiritually. The free man is Jesus Christ's spiritual slave. In other words, social status has nothing to do with spiritual status. We are all equal in standing before the Lord, and social status means nothing to him. The Lord called and worked through slaves. He called and worked through free men. Your situation, in large measure, is irrelevant to serving the Lord. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You meant all of them, whether slave or free man. Jesus bought them all in that he paid the price on the cross to release the human race from sin and death and set us free. Slaves should not become slaves of men by thinking their social status made them spiritually inferior. Free men should not become slaves of men by thinking their social status made them spiritually superior. You know, if you let things really get to you, you're making yourself the slave of those people that are bothering you. You become their slave. They want you to feel bad. They want to stress you out. They want to destroy your life. The only thing I can say is that you need to really receive the Holy Spirit in a new, fresh way and rise above that. And, and um, you know, outdo them at their own game. Just show them that there's nothing they can do to really get into your head uh, because you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Your call to salvation came to you in a social setting. A change in your social setting is spiritually irrelevant. It won't make you a better Christian, and in some cases, it will hinder you. We live in a society that values upward mobility. We should rather value spiritual stability. It isn't always a good thing spiritually to move upward socially. I've seen a lot of Christians become carnal as they got more into the world. Remain where you are and lessen until Jesus calls you to do something else. His call may not always be upward in society, but it will be forward in the kingdom of God. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. This was, first of all, an answer to the three specific questions the new believers in Corinth found themselves asking. It serves as a principle to not think the grass will be greener if we get out of it or, any, or away from our current situation. And so let's look at verses 10 through 16 now. Is Jesus calling me to remain in my spousal situation? It's tempting to jump right in and talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage, but we need to mention what Peter, uh, Paul rather said in verse 14. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. In a nutshell, this means the presence of the believing spouse creates the atmosphere of a sanctuary within which the non-believing family members may get saved. I don't think it's going too far to apply that to the other two groups, the Gentiles and the slaves. Remain as a witness, remain to be seen. And so keep that in mind. That's what Paul is talking about. And marriage is an example of that. 
Verse 10, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. In the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19, Jesus appealed to the account of Adam and Eve to give us the gold standard for marriage. One biological man, one biological woman, heterosexual, to remain in a monogamous relationship until the death of one of the spouses. And I would add that a believer must only marry another believer. The word depart has essentially the same meaning as divorce. And so the um, women were leaving their husbands. So here's the deal. Corinthians were getting saved. They were suddenly in mixed marriages with non-believers. Some had therefore departed for spiritual reasons because they believed that they were unequally yoked to non-believers. Paul comes and he says, no, 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 that's wrong. The departed wife, therefore, has to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the same was true for the husband. Verse 11, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So you understand the situation? Christians were leaving their non-Christian husbands and wives, not the other way around. He'll deal with that in a minute, but they, they were getting saved. Wife went to the marketplace uh, to buy fettuccine. First thing that popped into my mind, <laughs> lasagna. And uh, she, tacos. She went to the marketplace to get whatever wives get. Some Christian from the church at Corinth was there talking about the Lord, led her to Christ. She goes home and she says, oh, I'm married to a non-believer. Uh, and that weighs on her. Then maybe she gets to church and there's some kind of a teaching about that. And, and the next thing you know, she's leaving her non-believing husband for Christ, because she thinks it's spiritual. And that's what Paul is addressing here. He says, no, no, don't leave. And if you've left, remain unmarried and reconcile. It's not too late. You, you were supposed to stay in that marriage, you know, and so get back to it. We typically go to these verses to establish that abandonment by your non-believing spouse is biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. But in Corinth, it was the believers who were abandoning their marriages mostly. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and her husband is not to divorce his wife. And so you understand the situation. Verse 12, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, and if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Jesus never taught on this subject, so Paul does, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Same principle is applied, remain in the situation you found yourself in. A new condition is added, however, the non-believer must be willing to live with you in your newfound relationship with Jesus. For the unbelieving husband, verse 14, is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. The non-believing spouse is sanctified. That simply means that he or she is set apart by God to receive the witness of the saved spouse. He or she suddenly has a missionary living in the home. We don't encourage missionary dating for a Christian to date a non-Christian, but we would encourage missionary marriage where someone gets saved and takes the gospel home. And, and this is essentially how the gospel was spreading. Somehow people were coming into contact with Christians in the marketplace or through friendships. They were taking it back home and their families were hearing the gospel and getting saved in some cases, but in some cases not. And in those cases not, divorce wasn't called for. 
Now the kids too are holy, same word for sanctified in the sense of being set apart by God. Now if the kids are holy, what did Paul mean when he said, otherwise your children would be unclean? I'm pretty sure Judaism taught that kids under the age of accountability were saved, and so that's where Paul would be coming from. But even if that's not the case, I think what Paul is saying is something like this. If you were somehow being defiled by being married to a non-believer, then wouldn't your children also be defiled? But you don't believe that. And that's really, I think, the sense here of the words. Because one of the arguments, not, not, and maybe these women didn't really want to be departed from their husband, but they thought they ought to be. It's amazing what power a wrong spiritual idea can give you. And they think, well, I have to get away from my non-believing husband because this marriage now defiles me. And Paul was saying, if you think you're defiled, then your children must also be defiled. But nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that suddenly your children have become defiled because you got saved. If anything, they have even more chance at holiness. And so Paul is dealing with these very specific, very real pastoral issues. In a previous study, we talked about our bodies being the earthly temple of God, the Holy Spirit. The presence of the believing spouse makes the household a temple in which the non-believing spouse and children are exposed to Jesus. Gordon Fee says of this, and I quote, Paul is setting forth a high view of the grace of God at work through the believer toward members of his or her own household. And for him, that constitutes grounds enough for maintaining the marriage. The Apostle Peter said something similar, focusing on wives, when he said, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And so Peter agrees the the home in which you were saved into is a missionary situation for you to share the gospel. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Your non-believing spouse may opt to depart from you. Whatever else you do, God has called you to peace. And I think it's Paul's way of saying, if they've left and they're not coming back, let them go and be at peace with it because this is God's will for your life. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So he, up to this point, he'd been talking about, hey, you're a missionary at home so that your husband or wife can hear the gospel. But if they depart, then your missionary service is over. They're gone. You can't argue that they need to be here to get saved. They've made a decision. Their free will has been exercised and they're gone. Be at peace. Now, be at peace may mean that you remain unmarried, that you feel like you are going to wait, or it may mean like you move on. We'll talk about that briefly in a minute. But these are words that counsel you on the statement, let them depart. While it is true that there's a sanctifying influence, you don't know if they're going to get saved, so let them go. So let's pause briefly to discuss marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Adultery on the part of one spouse is biblical grounds for divorce and subsequent remarriage to another believer. Divorce isn't required. Reconciliation can happen and is often a better course of action, especially if there's real repentance and forgiveness, and there's children in the home. But listen, I hope you understand this uh, and take it the way it's meant. If divorce is allowed, and Jesus allows it, there are biblical grounds, if divorce is allowed, it doesn't make it less spiritual than reconciliation. If you choose divorce on account of your spouse's adultery, you are not second class to those who choose reconciliation. 
And I, I, I don't want to, I guess the bottom line here is that if God gives you a biblical freedom, then there's nothing wrong in accepting it. And there's nothing more spiritual about not accepting it. And I think we look at it that way. We always think that the wounded, offended spouse is more spiritual if they take the sinner back. And that's, according to God's word, that's not necessarily true. It's an option. We counsel in that direction. We want to save marriages, but no one needs to feel second class in areas where God doesn't make them feel second class. The death of your spouse releases you from marriage and allows for remarriage to a believer. Seems obvious, but some groups, uh, I, I know there's a group that teaches that since the Bible says for a leader, you're to be the husband of one wife, we would interpret that as that you're only married to one lady at a time. They interpret it as if your wife dies, then you can't remarry if you want to be in leadership because now you're the husband of more than one wife because you had a wife and now you have another wife. And so this is a weird, marriage is really, everybody's all over the map on this. And I know, you see how quiet it got in here when we started talking about marriage? It's like, okay. I hope he doesn't get to my situation. <laughs> Here's something to think about. Death of your spouse releases you to marry in the Lord, but Paul has already suggested you stay single, that you may serve the Lord. Again, it's not more spiritual to remarry. It's not more spiritual to be single. It's something God has to lead you into. Paul never really addressed the remarriage after abandonment, not directly. He did say a brother or sister is not under bondage in those cases. And we do interpret that to mean that the believer is not bound to the marriage. They are set free. And the only thing that can really mean in common language is they're set free to remarry in the Lord. Now, and so on the one hand, yes, we, we can extrapolate that from Paul's advice, but I think you understand it wasn't his, he wasn't doing a marriage study. He was talking about a principle that applied to marriage. And then we would look at this particular word that he chose and, and think, okay, you are now free to remarry in the Lord because you've been abandoned or divorced. The more we desire to simplify marriage, however, and divorce and remarriage, the more we see that each case has its own complexities. What constitutes abandonment? Can you abandon your spouse without leaving the house? I've had to struggle with this for, with a lot of people because of our psychologically affected culture. People come in, they say, my husband abandoned me. I go, where's he living? In, in the bedroom with me. Well, how does he abandon you? He's abandoned me emotionally. Okay. Is that grounds for divorce? Is that really abandonment? Don't, before you say no, you need to think about it. Uh, what about pornography? If that constitutes adultery, how much pornography gives the spouse grounds for divorce? Really, in our culture today, You've probably been exposed to 15 or 16 pornographic images already today. So is that grounds for divorce if, if you took a second look? <laughs> I didn't look. What if you're watching a television program and all of a sudden, you know, hey, this is a great Netflix show. Whoa, what just happened? Honey, we're divorced. <laughs> Netflix, divorce. I, I mean, I'm making light of it, but how much does... Does pornography constitute adultery? And if it does, how much pornography? Just the tiniest bit? I'm, I'm trying not to be funny, but this is a real issue that people have to struggle with. More importantly to me, is the believer seeking the divorce and remarriage? And do they 
want to glorify God or are they just trying to get out of a situation like a bad job? I don't like my job. Everybody's mean to me. I'm changing jobs. I don't like my marriage. My husband or my wife isn't the person I thought they were. I'm getting out. Paul would say, let's practice some missionary marriage. And, and that's where this gets tough. So obviously this really hits home anymore. Almost everyone has been affected in some way by divorce. Still, the place for two believers to start resolving their marital status is by acknowledging that their marriage was intended to be a lifelong commitment, that neither the wife nor the husband ought to depart, and that if one did depart and there was no physical adultery, they ought to attempt to reconcile. One of the biggest excuses I get today, we never should have got married in the first place. So now we're going to split and start all over again in the Lord. And, and this directly speaks to that. The Lord says, stay in the situation that you're in. I knew you weren't Christians when you first got married. I knew these things about you. Your marriage is valid. It is legal. And you should stay in it as a Christian. No one is saying that a spouse needs to stay in an abusive relationship, especially a physically abusive one. Uh, we, I don't know how many people I've told over the years to just call the police. It's sweet that, some, and that the first call that people make, women especially, is to their church. And I, I applaud you for that. But your first call is to the police if you've been physically abused. Then call your pastor and he'll go minister to your husband. Tell him what a deadbeat he is and stuff. So, I mean, physical abuse is not part of a marriage. No one is saying there are not difficulties or complications or unique situations. And we would be happy to think through your particulars with you. God hates it, but he permitted divorce in this fallen world listen to this, to protect injured spouses. That's what the whole Moses Deuteronomy thing was about. Men were putting their wives away for no reason. And God said through Moses, that's not right because it reflects negatively on these wives. You need to give them a certificate of divorce that protects them and lets people know they have done nothing wrong. And so I would say that no biblical teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage should ever punish the injured party. So if you want just kind of a, a principle to go on, be like God was in Deuteronomy. Don't punish the innocent. And that happens in churches because churches, are like you know, individuals do this too, but churches do it too when you're, you know, it's like, I, you know, I'm making a decision for the church when I say this. I don't want people to storm my door and say, how did you give her permission to be remarried? Don't you know what was going on? And those kinds of things. And, and there are people who want you to just stay in horrible situations. There are churches here in town that say that you can never remarry after a divorce. You have to reconcile. And that if your spouse gets remarried, they're committing adultery and you should, you're still not free to remarry. And that injures the innocent party. And you say, well, no one's innocent. You know what I mean. Sometimes somebody is wrong. Let's use that. Let's use right and wrong. No one's sinless. But sometimes somebody is wrong. A lot of times people come in for counseling and they want to hear a kind of a 50-50 thing. Well, you need to do this and you need to do that. And a lot of times I'll turn to one of them and say, you know what? You're just wrong. Your wife is right. Again, end of counseling. But uh, <laughs> sometimes it's true. Sometimes you are wrong. You're just wrong. And you need to be told that you're wrong. But we're never going to punish the injured spouse. Okay? So you, you, you can feel that safety. 
It was necessary to spend a little time on marriage and divorce and remarriage, but that isn't the main point. You're to be a sanctifying influence in your current situation. Doesn't mean you can never get out of it, but it is irrelevant to your mission of representing Jesus. So if somebody comes up to you today and says, man, I hate my job. You don't know what it's like working for Pastor Gene. No. You need to say, you know what? Jesus put you there. Remain in that situation until you have some really clear leading out because those people need Jesus Christ. Hey, I'll, I'll, maybe it's because I'm older and, and I'm stupider, but you know, there's a mass exodus out of California. People can't wait to get out of California to be nowhere. That's, that's what I, and, and I'm not, I, a lot of people are led. Don't, please don't get me wrong. I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway. You can't be led out of California because you hate people in California and, and you want to be all by yourself where you can shoot rabbits. Because people in California, they need the gospel. Let's recall Gavin McLeod or whatever his name is. <laughs> Gavin Newsom. How about Gavin McLeod? He'd make a great governor. Let's do that. I'm not against that. I'll sign the petition. I don't know what it's about, but let's go for it. But in the meantime, he needs to get saved. Not just for California's sake, but for eternity's sake. I mean, we're here. God, you know what? God knew he would put you in California. It's hard to believe. God, what were you thinking when I grew up in California? Now I happen to love California. But, um, you know, it's a matter of being led. When I came to Hanford... Who knew? Hanford? What kind of a place is that? Lamore, there's a naval base in Central California? Yeah, and there's a bridge out in the desert, the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, actually, there is now, so it's crazy. But uh, anyway, stay in the situation. Remain may not be a word you want to hear, but it's a word of grace from the Lord who is working in you as he works through you. Remain to be seen because it remains to be seen how the Lord wants to use you. Amen.